hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Did or would you support Dianne Feinstein's huh. bill to ban automatic assault weapons and tighten regulations right, on you gun know, accessibility? The answer is I'm on that bill. Right. Well, she like, says she yeah. can't um, She can't see uh, uh, any of Vermont representatives' names on the list of supporters. And while I've emailed you, Leahy, and Welch, I've heard nothing. So, so well, I'm not sure why that's so. I am on that legislation to the best of my knowledge. And I that's an interview between Jane Lindholm and Bernie Sanders right before Bernie hung up on her. Jane Lindholm was the host of Vermont Edition, VPR's midday public affairs show. She recently left Vermont Edition to focus on her podcast, But Why? A Podcast for Curious Kids, and also to produce special projects for the station. In her 14 years on the show, Jane interviewed governors, senators, authors, wildlife biologists. She interviewed me once, which was awful because I couldn't think fast enough. And this is one reason I wanted to interview her. I wanted to find out how this thing that I do so slowly, she can do so fast every single weekday. I mean, there's a whole team that produces the show. They do the research, they book the guests, they screen the calls, all of that. But I wanted to hear what it's like to be live every day with a different person. And also what it's like to be such a regular fixture in the lives of thousands of Vermonters every day. And then not. Mostly, this is a show for those of you who have been listening to Jane for 14 years to hear about what's actually going on in that studio and in her head during Vermont Edition. We sat in her garage in Moncton in fold-out chairs between her husband's beekeeping equipment and her kids' old bikes. She was only 28 when she got the job, and I asked her if she was nervous at the beginning. I was terrified. I wanted it. I really wanted it. And I was thrilled to get it. But yeah, I was terrified. I had directed live radio, but I'd never been the one speaking. But I really wanted to be in front of the microphone. I wanted to have those conversations. And I really liked the idea that this was a show where I wasn't reading a script, but it was live and I had to have that live conversation. But that was also super scary. And then I also had a lot of fear about what's the audience going to think? How do I be myself but likable, but also professional, but also not too too much of me. You know, like how do you, as a host, have a presence, but not a presence that's so overwhelming that it takes away from the guests or that it's annoying? And so how, do, how much do you reveal about yourself? When do you laugh? I didn't have a laugh that was vocal. So how do you have a laugh that is audible on the radio? Because a silent laugh is, doesn't come across. And then I had a lot of fear too about how do I have some authority in this role and with my colleagues when I'm only 28 and I'm just coming back to the state. How, how would you describe the trajectory of kind of establishing a rapport with the guests and the audience? Well, with the guests, I, I mean, nobody knew me, but they know VPR. And VPR obviously has had a really great reputation in the state and people trust it as guests, lawmakers, you know, civic leaders. So I had the reputation of VPR behind me, which was really helpful, because even if they didn't know who I was, they knew what organization I was coming from. And so there was a lot of built-in trust that I benefited from that I didn't have to do anything to earn. In the early days, I do remember it was actually kind of helpful to be unknown, 28, female, young-sounding, kind of friendly face. Because they underestimated me. 
they don't know who you are. You're a young woman. You're talking sweetly and asking them questions, and they think that you don't know what you're talking about. And so it was great in those early days. If I felt like I had done my research and and our whole team had you know put together a really good show with good research, so I knew what I wanted to ask the guest, then you could suck them in by not by by having them think that it was going to be an easy interview. And one of my friends once said that he used to listen for the moment where my voice would go up an octave because he knew something really killer was coming because he would say, you know, it's when you say to the governor, well, governor, why should we care that he knew it was going to just be a dagger to the heart? And I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think it's partly true that you can speak sweetly and carry a big stick, I guess, you know, you, you can have a conversation where you, you catch people off guard because they underestimate you. When you do have a, a long the decade-long rapport with some of these guests, are you trying to do something different with them than you were initially? I mean, or is there a game strategy? It's not a chess game. It's not strategy that I'm playing with guests. But sure, when I mean, you do it too, I'm sure, when you're, when you're in the middle of an interview and you're interacting with someone and you can see something or feel something or sense something, you can decide whether you want to go in on that or pull back a little bit. Or just keep it in your pocket for later to come back to. And so there's always that part of the conversation, which I think a lot of us do in natural conversation anyway. But you're doing it as a performance when it's a live show that people are listening to. And then there, I mean, you do have a different rapport with people. Like I think it was Governor Shumlin, Peter Shumlin, who was getting a lot of criticism for things in his personal life for a while. And he seemed to be kind of angry with the press Partly because I think when he started, he was pretty early in his tenure as governor when Tropical Storm Irene hit, and there was a lot of goodwill toward him and a lot of coming together. And then in his next term, it was like he had forgotten that the press has a job that is not just to be coming together during hard times, and so they were hard on him, and and he didn't like that. And we were in one live interview, and he said something about, well, you know, the press is just interested in my love life and my personal life, and I could say to him... I have never asked you a question about that, and I am not. I don't care about your love life. I'm asking you a question about X, Y, and Z policy. And I could do that because we had established a professional rapport over the years where I had enough of a legacy with him to say, to, to be able to point to it and say, I have never done that. You You know I have never done that. Can we have a conversation where you are not guarded or or have a wall up because you think I'm going to ask you that kind of question because you know I won't, you know me. So you sort of have to use, you can use your new status to your advantage or you can use your well-established status to your advantage too. What is happening right before an interview begins? I mean, let's say that it's the olden times when you're actually in person with somebody. Mm -hmm. What are you doing in the moments before an interview? Well, in the olden times... Mitch Wortlieb, who usually does the noon newscast, is in the same studio. So from 12.04 to 12.07, nobody can talk because Mitch is doing a live newscast. Often, I was printing the script at 12.01 or 12.02. In the two seasons that I was pregnant and doing the show, I was trying to make sure that I saved myself enough time to pee 
I mean, if you're very pregnant and you have an hour where you cannot pee, it's excruciating. And so it was always this mad dash to think, can I get everything ready? And can I actually pee before the show? And for a while, we had single stall bathrooms. And I mean, those moments where it was full at 12.02, I was always so mad at my colleagues, completely irrationally. But, you know, it was this feeling like nobody should be peeing right before Vermont audition. It's my time to pee. So, I'm, yeah, I'm usually peeing, um, writing, getting the script printed, and, of course, at some point realizing that the printer's out of paper and freaking out, and then getting into the studio. I didn't, depending on who the guest was, if it was a guest where we might want a little bit of time to talk, I could get in there early and we could have a chat. If it was a politician, they often didn't want to have a chat. Bernie never wanted to have a chat. Uh, Most of the governors show up as close to the moment they go on air as possible, so they really don't want to have a chat. But, you know, a little bit of chit-chat back and forth. Anything I can answer for you before we start? This is going to be great. It's just a conversation. You know, here's a glass of water. Could you get a little bit closer to the microphone? And then you go live. I didn't want to have a ton of conversation before the show started, which would then not be happening on air. I wanted that conversation and that tension or chemistry to happen on air and it's so different like this conversation that we're having and when I would do field reporting you're looking for the little asides and you're looking for the stuff that isn't the formal interview and there can be a lot of warm-up to get the guest where you want them before you turn on the mic and that just isn't the way it worked in a live interview show you were trying to have that whole thing on the air Tom Salmon joins us now from our studio in Montpelier. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Jane. You know, I I know a lot of people wonder how much they can have to drink before they are officially over the limit. As I said, you were taken into custody by state police Friday night after a gathering with colleagues. Specifically, how much did you have to drink? Jane, I had enough. And my message today is that if you're a public elected official, you have to give people what they want, which is the truth so I plan to say what I mean and mean what I say going forward, taking my lumps, dealing with the consequences, and facing it like a man. Well, I appreciate that, and I can certainly hear what you're saying, but you still didn't answer the question. How much did you have? Is it your responsibility, or do you feel responsible for the comfort level of the guest? Yes, yes, to some degree. I always wanted a guest to feel like I was being respectful, And that I was listening. Beyond that, it depends on who the guest is. If you have a guest who is not media savvy, who you're not asking to be on because they have some position of authority, but you're asking them to be on to tell a personal story, absolutely. I feel like I am responsible not for them to have a great time or to get easy questions, but yes, to feel like they were engaged in a respectful conversation that valued what they had to say and didn't take advantage of them. I mean, I, re- I was on your show once. I was on the phone, and I was I I was so nervous that I left my body, <laughs> and and I'm I was just pacing around my living room. But what I noticed was every it felt so fast. Yeah, there was never a moment where you didn't have a follow up question. And so literally, when you asked me a question, I remember just going um <laughs> because I didn't have an answer. Right. I had to think about it. But there's, you do feel as though you need to have an answer when you're on live radio. Mm-hmm. And you need to have a question. You need to have a question and you need to have an answer. And so 
I just wonder, there must be people who don't have an answer right away. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I mean, again, to the guests who are not, who you do have an obligation to protect in some way, I would always say to a guest like that, you don't have to answer it. And if I ever interviewed a kid, I always say this to kids, you, you never have to answer a question you don't want to answer. You can say, I don't know. You can say, I'd rather not answer that. I would always rather have somebody say, I don't know, I need to think about that, or I don't know the answer to that, or I don't want to answer it, than to bullshit their way through an answer, which is often what you get from, or sometimes, not often, sometimes what you get from politicians. But yeah, when somebody doesn't have an answer, that dead air that nobody wants to have can be the most remarkable piece of tape or live moment that you've ever had. And so it's great, you ha- and you have to learn that because it is uncomfortable as a host to leave that dead air. And sometimes I don't. I'm, sometimes I jump in too quickly. But yeah, that moment where they don't have an answer—that's that's important radio. Why don't they have an answer? Are they crying? Are they picking their words really carefully? Are they? I mean, yeah. There's so many things that can happen in that silence that are so profound and exciting and good radio. And so, yeah, it and, it and it never bothers me when somebody doesn't have an answer because who has an answer all the time? I'm not giving them the questions ahead of time. So why should they have an answer ahead of time? What about people who, a nervous, a common nervous reaction is emotion. So there are people, I imagine, who cry, who, who's, who become emotional and can't control that. How have you managed that? I haven't had too many people get emotional in that way, but you can hear when they're getting nervous and I can hear it because it's the same way that I get nervous. What happens to me is I start to speak really fast and forget to take breaths. So then I sound like I'm out of breath and you can hear when people are doing that, they start talking really fast and get out of breath. And if you're in the same room with them, if I'm in the same room with them, that's a time when I will probably not look at my computer screen at all because the producers are often either sending me an email that I could read or telling me what call could come next or sending me a note about something and I can also see the call screen so I can see the calls that are getting up on the screen and I have a script and then on the table I have questions that I think I might ask but I although I don't follow them and so sometimes I can look at all of that stuff while the interview is going on. But if somebody is nervous or emotional or I feel like they need that level of intimacy, I just I don't look at any of it. I just put it all aside and just look at them very intently and do the same thing that you're doing where instead of vocalizing a response, you can just make an expression with your face. The, the number of things that you're juggling at once is pretty extraordinary. So there is a, a very kind of right brain in overdrive aspect to this work. There's also a way in which this object, when we turn it on, changes the, the way that time changes. It kind of bends things in a way. Things become focused in a very heightened way. And I wonder if, if it's, is it, it all, is it also a creative state that you enter into when you're, when you're doing a show? A little bit. But it's weird because we're in a studio setting and there's a microphone in front of you and you're in a studio that has a lot of equipment and through the glass are all of these people who are doing technical radio reporting things. And so it doesn't feel 
I always feel present in that space, so it's hard to feel super creative. And you know, it's not like we're we're moving into a different space. Although there have been a few interviews where I've gotten out, and I'm sort of like, what happened there? But but I think guests sometimes feel that way more than I do because I have to stay pretty tethered to all of those other things, like the clock, and how much time we have left in the interview, and am I hearing myself on the mic right? And is the guest bouncing their bracelet on the table in a way that I'm going to have to tell them during the break to stop doing? So it's hard to feel, it's hard to move into that portal where you're just in the time-space continuum with the guest. But in a way that feels like it's the same. I mean, you are in a state of of complete absorption, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is, to me, that's a creative state. There is no room for anything else In that time, which makes me wonder, do you ever think about lunch? Only when the guest is really boring. But no, I mean, it's, it's been one of the greatest gifts to have a show where every day you have to go on, you have to perform because it is a performance. You have to, you have to be on. And so, you know, there are days where I've had a terrible fight with my spouse and I'm like so mad at him and so distracted by whatever our argument was that you know I get to work and I think I'm how am I ever going to focus on this and then you get into the research of the show and the writing of it and it it sort of draws me away from whatever is happening in my own life and then you get into the hour of the show and you cannot be thinking about your relationship at home or anything else but the show and so by the end of an hour I'm in a totally different place than I was in the morning I get out of the studio and Sometimes I'm exhausted, but I am not thinking about the things that were bothering me in the morning or the fact that I have to go to the mechanic this afternoon and how am I going to now, how am I going to do that and the childcare pickup and what are my kids doing and did they have enough clothes today? You can't think about that in the hour. And so it's been really cool because it takes me out of my own stupid head and into something else every day. You have been uh, pregnant and doing this show. You have been a brand new mother and doing this show. I mean, there are heightened states Mm -hmm. of life. You know, there's March, which is its own (laughs) thing here, right? So you have certain existential concerns and hormonal distractions. How does that reality bleed into Maybe bleed into the work and maybe even in a good way. I mean, maybe does it, you, you bring a certain sensitivity from your life into this hour. Oh, it's, yeah, it's totally present. I think what changes is that self-centered feeling that we all have about how our own life is the most important thing in the moment. That goes away. But all of the things that I have been experiencing or going through, I try to bring those, bring that experience to the work and to try to imagine what it would be like for somebody going through something different. Weirdly, going through, becoming a parent, dealing with some of the ins and outs of parenthood and being a child of parents that are getting older and all of that kind of stuff, I feel like gives me more empathy for people who are having different kinds of experiences. After my first child was born, my son was born, I came back to work And my colleague, Patty, had called me up the week before I was supposed to come back to work, my last week of maternity leave. And she said, you know, I'm really sorry, but we've scheduled your first show back is about the two children who have died recently in DCF custody. And 
It's a show about child abuse. And if you don't want to host it, we would understand. And I really appreciated that. But doing that show, I felt like I was better at it than I would have been before I had a kid. Having experienced that intense time just after your child is born had given me a better perspective on how much love there is and how just how incredibly challenging and difficult it can be. And I thought about my own life and realized this is so hard and I have enough money that I have enough food. I have a partner who is a partner in this with me, who's not just a presence, but a a real partner. And I had parents who were role models and I have all of these benefits and it is still so hard. So I felt like it gave me a lot more empathy for people who don't have all of those benefits going for them and just how challenging parenting would be, which is not to give a pass to child abuse, but to go a little bit deeper into why it might be happening or what somebody going through that, all of the complicated feelings that they would have. I had more emotion, but that made me a better host in that time. I did have family, but I lived too far at times to come home for the holidays. A lot of times I would create my own dinner and invite people over. Yeah, Sam, um, thank you for that. I, I so appreciate that perspective. And Dr. Ratu, I think that is a good point. Just, you know, it's, it's easy to get wrapped up in what's happening. You have to be skeptical. Skepticism is a really big part of this role. But it's sort of, it's sort of skeptical and trusting in equal measure. Because if you're only skeptical then you're not giving people an opportunity to open up to you. But if you're too trusting, then you're just going to believe everything they say. I think there has to be both. You want to expect that someone will surprise you, that they can go beyond their own skepticism or their own standard protocol of what they're going to give you. Is that a strategic question or is it a human interaction challenge or both frankly sometimes I know I'm going to go into an interview and not draw them out that's not what they're there for that's not what I'm there for and that's not what the audience wants you want them to be honest so there's still that skepticism but you're not getting deep into their psyche sometimes I've tried you know especially with congressman Welch where he likes to talk a lot about bipartisanship and I think genuinely wants to work in a bipartisan manner and at some points in the past 10 years, that's been pretty nigh on impossible. And so there were times where I'd want to say, how do you not get discouraged by this? And sometimes they just won't go there. And sometimes he will, but it's still a pretty practiced response, which I understand. Why would they say something that could get them in trouble? And then sometimes you can get, I mean, Bernie Sanders hung up on me one time. So that's the moment where you realize, oh, okay, something's going on here. And and that's rare. If it, I mean, if that happened every time, then it wouldn't feel so emotional or like that sort of frizzen of energy that you get. So when he hung up on you, did you sing? What did you start to sing? What did you do? How did you fill that time? It was not live, luckily, that moment. It, we, we had pre-taped it in the morning because of his availability. So then we just aired it as it had happened. As if not, we didn't say it, we said it was pre-taped, we didn't say it was live, but we didn't edit that out. We basically said, here's how the conversation went. So luckily in that moment, I didn't have to do anything to make up the time. There have been times where, not where a guest has hung up and left. I've never had a guest leave a live interview, but we've had technical difficulties where the phone line drops and you have to vamp. Those are the moments where I leave my body. 
because I, I have no idea what I just said. I've just been talking. Often in the control room, they forget that they need to tell the host something. So they're just, they're running around like crazy. And I'm thinking, guys, somebody just tell me, can, can I go to a break? Do I, can I get another guest on the phone? Do you need me to talk? What, I, I can talk for about two and a half minutes and then I'm going to be out of relevant things to say. And then I'm just going to be, I mean, I have and then I get done and I'm like, I have no idea what I just said. None. Is it possible to characterize the personality types of, I mean, after doing this for so long, is there a way to characterize the different personality types of guests yeah, I'm sure there are. I don't get many hostile guests, but you get some that are very terse, and that's a challenge. And then you get some that are very verbose, and that's even more of a challenge because then you have to figure out when to cut them off. And some are just talking, and they don't realize they're being long-winded, and that's easy because then you can interrupt and say, can I just redirect you for a second, or can I pick up on something you were just saying? But the ones who know they are and, and really want to finish whatever they were saying – there are a few guests who don't like, I don't know whether they just don't like a journalist interrupting or they don't like a woman or they don't like me, but there are some that don't want to stop talking when you're saying, okay, it's time to move on to the next question. And it's not that I'm trying to be a jerk to the guest. I'm actually trying to help them by breaking it up so there's a little bit more texture, but also so that listeners don't zone out and switch the channel to WOKO. And so I don't think those guests that are so proud of their own voices realize it but I'm actually trying to be helpful in the moment and thinking of it as this is not just you and me talking but this is a performance and you the guest should also be thinking of your audience at this point and trying to keep them so that's a challenge authors can be I really love interviewing authors but I always feel challenged by that because I never I've, I vacillate between wanting them to really like how deeply I've read the book and how insightful I am about their work and then making something that is actually of value to the audience who's supposed to listen to this interview. This next question exactly. is a good one. On page 72, I noticed that you uh, in, evoked, evoked springtime in a really interesting way and I just, I thought that was profound. Jeff, the, a lot of what you've been talking about with bear meat seems to sort of um, like run parallel to how people might process and then cook different parts of a pig. I mean, you're talking about sausage, you talk about ham, you talk about, you know, the, the various ways that people might be thinking about pork. So there's you, and then there's Vermont Public Radio, and you are not one and the same. I wonder if there's ever any strain or tension between what, you know, VPR sounds like, expects, and your growth? Are there divides where you've gone left and VPR has gone right in terms of what you, what you find is appropriate or what you think is interesting? Not much. VPR has been a great place to work because they, they've given me a lot of rope. <laughs> and Vermont Edition, we get to do what we want. So as a show, we grapple with these things and we try to push each other pretty hard on how do we want to tackle this subject and is that the right way? But there's nobody telling me no. There's nobody who's ever been telling me no, which is kind of remarkable. I, for a couple of years now, have been beating a drum that I don't think everybody on staff cares to hear or wants to follow. 
I think Vermont needs to do a better job, but also VPR needs to do a better job in thinking and talking about culture and class differences. And I think we're doing a lot of work as a state and as a journalism organization in thinking and talking about race and racism. And we need to do way more, but we are not talking about class differences. And I think we often do stories that talk about people in certain classes, but not to them or for them or with them. You know, so my husband, Adrian, sometimes I'll talk about a story or an issue and he'll say, well, that's not how the conversation is going at my work or at the fire department where he volunteers in our town or, you know, among his hunting buddies. And he's right. You know, the, the, the way we tackle topics, I think it often is from a sort of upper middle class perspective, more urban. And even when we're doing things about like food insecurity or school issues, we're not necessarily bringing people in to have a conversation with us. We're talking about them. I think that the state has a lot of work to do on upper middle class white liberalism and the blind spots that upper middle class white liberals have and don't either don't know about or don't want to acknowledge. When you go from a daily show, it seems intense all the time. Mm -hmm. And so to go from that lifestyle to a different one, I mean, how does that impact your ego? How does it impact your, your, your feelings about yourself? I imagine that that is a confusing thing. Hugely so. And I think I would like to think that that's that my ego is not a big part of me, but I think it's going to be really hard. It's been really wonderful to be recognized for my work and to have people appreciate it. And, you know, to be to have I mean, it's really nice to have people say, I love what you do. And so to step to to willingly step away from that. I don't know what I'm going to be without this show and without that sort of external validation. And it's going to be hard for me. It's going to be really hard. Um, What are you most excited about and what do you think you're afraid of? I'm not afraid of being irrelevant, but I am nervous about how to redefine relevance in a job where you don't constantly get told how relevant or great you are or whether or what you're doing was terrible or great. I mean, there's just so much constant feedback in a daily show, not always positive, but there's constant feedback and you feel relevant. So I'm, I'm worried about how to step back and find different ways to feel and be relevant and to do important work that's not so front and center and visible all the time. And one of the things that's been hard for me is I just haven't had any brain space to think about things, not work, just to think. And if I have the freedom to make some choices about what it is I'm doing, I don't know yet what other feelings are going to come into that. What are the things that are important to me if I have more time than just job and kids? Who do, what do I want to be? Who do I want to be? How do I be a better friend? How do I how do I do it all? It's going to be terrible. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> but I'm really excited about 
some of the work. I'm really excited to be able to dig in and focus on some things that take more than one day to research and do. There have been some stories that have been kicking around in my head for 10 years that I have not had the time or the brain space to work on. And I'm really excited to work on them. That's Jane Lindholm. If you want to learn about the But Why podcast, which she co-produces with Melody Bodet, go to vpr.org and search for the podcast section. Vermont Edition has two new hosts, Connor Cyrus and Michaela Lafrac. Godspeed to you both, especially with Bernie. Music for this show is by Brian Clark and Mike D'Onofrio. Rumblestrip is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts from all over the country. One of these shows is called Ministry of Ideas. It's out of Cambridge. It's a small show that investigates the big ideas that shape our world. A recent episode explores scientific discoveries that could have profound moral implications, like overcoming tribalism and aggression. You can find Ministry of Ideas at hubspokeaudio.org. I'll be back soon with a really amazing interview with a Bosnian man called Irfan, who owns an insurance agency and knows how to throw an axe. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. How about reptiles and amphibians? <laughs>